This podcast may contain adult language and situations, graphic, gory details, and other not-so-nice things. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Lacey. And I'm Ashley. And this is United States of Murder. This week, we're in New Jersey discussing a potential demon possession. Then we'll talk about a disturbing murder that went unsolved for a year. Buckle up and join us on this dark and twisted ride through the Garden State. What do Lizzie Borden, Ronald DeFeo, and Lyle and Eric Menendez all have in common? They were all kids who murdered their parents. We don't hear about these cases very often, but when we do, they stick in our minds and make our blood run cold. Parasite is defined as the killing of a parent and is the rarest type of murder. According to the FBI, parasite accounts for about 2% of all homicide cases. Typically, the motivation is long-term abuse by the parents, but that's not always the case. There are three types of parasite offenders, the severely abused, the mentally ill, and the dangerously antisocial. But the case I'm going to tell you about doesn't fall under any of these. No, mine is one of the most brutal murders in American history. A loving son, an athlete, and an altar boy, whose bright light was overshadowed by the dark forces of evil in the midst of the satanic panic of the 80s. This is the horrifying story of Tommy Sullivan. Jefferson Township, New Jersey, is located about an hour from New York City. It's an idyllic little suburb surrounded by woods. It's kind of isolated, but a nice area and a perfect place to raise your kids. This is where 37-year-old Betty Sullivan lived with her husband of 16 years, Tom, and their two children, 14-year-old Tommy and 8-year-old Brian. Tommy went to a private Catholic middle school a few towns over, This wasn't uncommon in the area. Parents that could afford it would often bus their kids to this school where they were taught by the Archdiocese of New Jersey, as well as all the priests and all the nuns. Hmm. So he was not only taught about math and science, but also about good and evil, the stations of the cross, revelations, eternal damnation, archangels, demons, and the Antichrist. All the things that good little Catholic boys and girls like to learn about. (laughs) Especially little Ashley. Especially little Ashley. Tommy was also super athletic and was on the wrestling team. So apparently wrestling in New Jersey is a major sport, kind of like football is in the South. Mm -hmm. Like everybody does it and like your your uncle, your grandpa, everybody's name's up on the board. Like it's, it's it's a big deal. Like, these kids train year-round and have weigh-ins before meets. They have strict diets because of this. They have meets, like, twice a week. Super competitive. Since Tommy went to one of these private Jesuit schools, that meant that he would be the new kid when he started junior high the next year, which is pretty scary. But it didn't seem to bother him. He also made very good grades. Like, he was, he's a good kid. Yeah, well-rounded. Yeah. So he attended, like I said, a Catholic school Monday through Friday. On Saturdays, he took three hours of CCD classes, which stands for Confraternity of Christian Doctrine. Basically for Catholic kids, it's Sunday school. Three hours, that's long. It helps you get ready for your first communion and confession and basically just teaches you how to be a better Catholic. I took CCD classes before my first communion. Is that aside from mass? Like, do you have to go to mass too? Yes. On Sundays, Tommy went to mass with his family and was an altar boy. So he's seven days a week. That's a lot. That's a lot of Lord. Just saying. (laughs) It's a lot lot of the Lord. Even Jesus is like, take a break. Take a break. Take a break. (laughs) So in November of 1987, right before Thanksgiving break, One of Tommy's eighth grade teachers, who was a Jesuit priest in training, gave the class an assignment. Each student was assigned a different religion of the world, and they had to write a paper on this. So Tommy was assigned Mormonism. Interesting. And his friend Lance decided to write about Satanism. 
which this seems to be when Tommy's ideology shifted. Oh, boy. So Lance was the guy that wrestled with Tommy, and the two became buddies, and he kind of had everything that Tommy wanted. He had free time. He, you know, wasn't training like a maniac, like Tommy's family made him, you know, train all the time. And religion wasn't shoved down his throat seven days a week. So he had all this info about this new and mysterious pseudo-religion that was kind of fascinating to Tommy. But Tommy also didn't believe it. Not at first, anyway. He was very skeptical. He thought that this was superficial, but he liked the music and stuff. Lance's sister's boyfriend gave Tommy a copy of the Satanic Bible and introduced him to heavy metal music, which he'd never really been his jam before, but he liked it. Whatever. He's 14. But something changed around Christmas. Tommy became very aggressive towards his parents and during sports games and actually got benched at one of his wrestling matches after he slammed the opponent down so aggressively he shattered the other kid's elbow. Oh my gosh. He also started missing school and mass, sleeping till noon and locking himself in his bedroom and blaring heavy metal music. Gosh, what a stereotype. I know. So he wasn't drawn to Mormonism. No. No. No, that wasn't. mm -mm. So some think that this all changed after he went to a place called Clinton Road with his friend Lance. This is located about 15 minutes away or a one hour bike ride from where they lived. Clinton Road is America's most haunted road. Mm. Allegedly. There's witches and devil worshippers and all that weird, scary shit. And there's also a ghost of a little boy who, if you toss a coin off the bridge, he will throw it back up to you. There's several people that testify You know I would try that. I would never go down this road. You would. I would not. Come come at me, little boy. Nope. (laughs) So the boys go there and hang out in the woods out of curiosity in the middle of the night where Tommy was supposedly exposed to devil worshiping and allegedly opened himself up to a demon. But there's no proof of this, technically. I was about to say, who exactly did there's, they? There's, this is all hearsay. Okay. So on one of these trips, close to Christmas, there was an explosion, and between 10 and 12 adults dressed in dark robes and masks come out of the woods. Some were on fire and kind of stomping themselves to put it out. A group of teenagers that were sitting in their car saw this and drove away without them noticing. They saw two teenage boys leaving, too. One of them was attempting to help the other walk. And when they saw this, they turned around to go back to help the boys, but they were gone. So this car of teenagers goes to the police department and reports this. Hmm. So there is a record of this happening. Okay. But there's no record proven that it was Tommy and Lance. Mm -hmm. They just said they saw two boys. So Tommy rapidly went downhill from this night forward after these visits. Maybe it was anger. Maybe it was teenage angst. Maybe it was all the pressure from the religion being shoved down his throat or wrestling. I don't know. But 17 days later, everyone who knew the Sullivans would be left in shock. Fast forward. Friday, January 8th, 1988. Tommy was out late. Don't know what he was doing. Mom decides to wait up on him and confront him about being out. The company he was keeping, the heavy metal music. She's worried about her son. He's Mm -hmm. 14. Like, he's a kid. So, you know, the disregard for the rules and him being shut up with the door locked. All the things. This was all a red flag that something was going on. So mom's waiting for him to get home. He comes in. She confronts him about her concerns. Argument ensues. Teenagers. I mean, we've been there. So Tommy tells his mom that he's going upstairs to go to bed. But he doesn't. He hides in wait for her to walk by. Grabs a dumbbell and crushes her skull. He takes a pocket knife out of his pocket and proceeds to stab his mother 37 times. He also cuts her eyeballs out and carves her face up. This is a brutal attack. Oh my, I thought you were going to say he was waiting for her to go to bed and he would sneak out. Not brutally. Oh my gosh. There's blood everywhere. Like all over. Oh my. Tommy goes to the bathroom sink to wash up. And at some point 
his little eight-year-old brother wakes up and comes into the bathroom and sees Tommy. And he tells him, go back to bed. I just cut myself. Mom's going to take me to the hospital to get stitches. Now, as I'm telling you, retrospect, Max is eight. So just, yeah. So his little brother goes back upstairs and goes to sleep. He didn't see his mom, thank God. So just before midnight, the fire alarm in the house goes off. Dad wakes up, goes to wake his wife up. She's not there. So he thinks she she must have heard this and she went to get the boys. So he's running through the house, yelling. No one's answering. He runs out of the house across the street to the neighbors for help. And he sees his car is crashed in a snowbank in the neighbor's driveway. And it's still running. But dad's not concerned with this right now. He's like, my fucking house is on fire. Can't find my wife, my kids. So he goes and knocks on the neighbor's door. They have two kids that are in college. And so they were kind of having a party and there were college kids around. So he beats on the door, tells them his house is on fire. They follow him back to his house. And once they go inside, suddenly the eight-year-old comes out of his room and tells his dad, I saw Tommy covered in blood. Then he cut himself. So mom was driving him to the hospital. So obviously dad's thinking that's why the, the cars crashed. Maybe they were in a hurry and whatever. So suddenly he hears one of the college kids scream from downstairs and he runs straight past him outside. So dad walks downstairs to the basement and he sees his wife's feet. He runs over to her and this is when he sees her eyes have been gouged out and her face is carved up. She has multiple skull fractures and her entire head is caved in and there's a bloody dumbbell laying close by. Police get there. He's in the basement. He's in the basement. This is the basement. The basement's where... like their living room. Like it's one of those houses that's like by tri level or whatever, you know? Oh, okay. Like you go downstairs, that's okay. the living room. So but like his bedroom was up. Yeah. And, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm. So there's a dumbbell, you know, laying by. Police get there, a fire truck comes, fire's put out, which had started in the living room by books that were piled into a circle. And there were pages ripped out of the Satanic Bible and other occult books. And that's, he had set those on fire. There's no sign of Tommy anywhere. Investigators come in, take photos, take the dumbbell. They're looking at everything. They're gathering their evidence. Forensic photos are taken. And they notice that there is a blood smear almost eight feet off the ground. Like right under the ceiling. Like of eight foot tall ceilings. There is a blood smear at the top down the wall to mom's body. Like, how the hell did that get up there? Mm, Yeah. Like, it looked like she was thrown up against that and slid down the wall. So where's Tommy? Tons of people are out. They're looking. They're searching. There's APB put out. I mean, he's a 14-year-old kid. And at this point, they don't know that he's done this. He's just missing. Yeah. Like, they can't find him. So they go to dad's car, the one that was in the neighbor's driveway, and they find a handwritten contract between Tommy and the greatest demon of hell, where he promised to murder his entire family before killing himself. Oh. And he signed it. What? So now they know that the murderer is Tommy, their teenage son. But why? What was the motive? So they're ruling out all other possibilities, but... That suicide note basically spelled it all out. And the burning of the Satanic Bible and all the occult books, they knew this was, you know, all kind of related. And you got to think, 1988, that was like in the middle of the Satanic Panic when all that stuff was Mm -hmm. happening and the heavy metal music and the Dungeons and Dragons and the books and all the shit was blamed for devil Mm -hmm. worshiping and all that. So early the next day, the neighbor... Across the streets, looking out his window, drinking his coffee, and sees someone sitting against his wood pile. So the guy walks out to investigate, and the closer he gets, he sees the snow is pink and red, and it's 14-year-old Tommy. Hmm. He got so freaked out, the neighbor, because one of Tommy's hands is hanging off. Like, it's almost sliced completely off and is, like, hanging backwards. His neck had also been sliced from ear to ear. 
Like, he was almost decapitated. His oh, head okay. was, like, hanging by a thread. Oh. So, he thinks, obviously, whoever did this to his mother did this to him. But he notices that there's only one pair of footprints in the snow. So, he had to have walked there mm-hmm. by himself. So, the whole scene is horrific. Like, how, there's no way he could have done this to himself. He sees the knife sitting, you know, like in the snow beside him that he used to cut his wrist. And this is the knife that would eventually be also proved that was used on his mother. It was a three-inch knife that Tommy had got while he was in Boy Scouts. Tommy had used the knife to cut his wrist. The knife had slipped between the bones in his arms and severed his tendons, not his arteries, So he wouldn't have bled out this way, Mm -hmm. but these cuts were so deep that it sprayed blood all around. Mm. Tommy then cut his own neck so bad and so deep that it severed his windpipe, arteries, muscles, and larynx. His head fell back so that his right ear was touching his right shoulder blade. Oh my gosh. So he's like chin up like this. So this is an explosion of blood that was as far as 10 feet around him. Like cannot even imagine this man looking outside and seeing all this. This is a 14 year old boy and and he's, he's dead. So police are called and get there. They determine that Tommy must have walked there after killing his mother and crashing the car, sat down in the snow, leaned up against the wood pile. And watched the coroner remove his mother before he killed himself. Oh my goodness. Yes, I told you it was terrible. So the coroner that picks Tommy up was shocked that these were self-inflicted because they were so brutal. He also says that when you cut the tendons in your, you, your tendons move your fingers. Mm-hmm. So if you cut this one, this hand's dead. So then how are you going to cut this one? And then if you cut both of them, how are you going to cut your neck? Mm -hmm. And if you cut your neck first, you're not going to be able to cut your wrist. So I wouldn't think he would have cut his neck first. So it doesn't make any sense. So at his funeral, police were posted because they were worried that satanic cults would come and try to take his body. And they would kill anyone who tried to stop them. They believed that the the Satan worshipers would think that the soul of the devil lived within Tommy's body, and so they would come to get him. So right after the funeral of Betty and Tommy take place, Dad takes Brian, the surviving son, the eight-year-old, and moves to Florida and is remarried within a year, which kind of feel like was in poor taste, and it kind of made it look like, was this a crime of passion, and then you framed your kid? But maybe Dad was just trying to protect his son. I mean, eight years old, that's a kid, that's a baby. Max is a baby. Yeah. And they needed to move on with their lives. I mean, he still had to grow up, you know, and he couldn't with yeah, all, I mean, I can't. It's, ugh. So this was absolutely shocking to this town. Uh, yeah. Six weeks earlier, this had been a normal, all-American, Irish Catholic boy. So what happened? What made this loving son and brother murder his mother and take his own life in such a horrible way? Geraldo Rivera thought he had all the answers. I believe he thought he did. So he comes to this town and does a special on devil worshiping, like a documentary. And you can watch it on YouTube and it is fucking bananas. He speaks to all the people in the Catholic church and asks their opinion on demonic possession. And a town hall meeting was held to kind of calm the townspeople. Priests and satanic experts come in and... Someone demands to know, like, how was this kid even exposed? Well, between being in Catholic school for five days a week and CCD classes and then mass on Sunday, you're kind of cramming religion down this kid's throat 24-7. So, I mean, I'm just saying, don't come for me, people. But, I mean, mass consists of nothing but powerful evil forces battling angels in the Bible. It's not a love story. This shit's scary. Well, yeah, and I only know this from a Protestant perspective, but even 
some churches I went to, it's like a lot of fire and brimstones. Hell and damnation. That's all they preach. Yeah, it's... There's a lot of dark stuff in the Bible, too, this by the way. Yes, it's not like, It's not a Nicholas Sparks novel, people. No. So I'm like, every day this kid's bombarded by this stuff. And he basically started to identify with the more evil side than good. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. So people didn't like this. They were like, wait a minute. <sighs> you mean we've taught this kid about evil? It's not the heavy metal and the violence on TV? Can we just talk about that for a second? Do you not think it's odd? Here we go. Here's where our DMs are going to start blowing Mm. up because I'm about to just fire this out there. Oh, boy. Do you not think it's odd that everyone is so quick when bad things happen to blame it on TV or rap music or heavy metal music or TikToks or whatever, you know? Well, it's all because they don't want the blame to be on... I'm not saying it was their parenting, but you know, it does, you don't want the blame to be on your parenting, on something you did, on something you could fix. Like, if it's music, that's an outside source. Bad movies, that's an outside, you know what I right. mean? But it's like, it's just people not wanting to how can you take responsibility. How can you expect that children and teenagers are so influenced by rap music and TikToks and all these things, but you never think or consider the fact of all the terrible things that are in religion? Oh, yeah. I'm just saying, like, it's not just Catholics, Mormons, Buddhism, whatever they teach and talk about. It's like religion is untouchable when it comes to these things. Mm -hmm. Hell is scary. It's scary for a grown up. Yes. You you probably don't know about these, but these like, when I was growing up, the churches would always have this like play every year. It's called like Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. Was that not just terrifying as a kid? And why did you make us get on a fucking church bus and go watch this about... I can't. There's a billboard. We pass it when we're going to Pensacola. I think it's in Alabama, but there's a big billboard that just says, the devil's going to get you. I'm like... <laughs> but it has a picture of a, a devil. And I'm like, why are you... Don't scare people, first of all, Why are you religion? horrifying yeah, young no. children and teenagers into believing that you're going to burn in hell for all of eternity and it's going to be the most horrible thing forever and ever and ever. But somebody says big old ass and titties on a rap song and they're like, well, that's why they stabbed somebody because they heard the word ass and titties. Probably not, Felicia. Yeah, probably not. WAP probably isn't what would. WAP is not going to send someone over. No, No, I agree. I agree. Look, I went to plenty of Sunday schools and I thought, that most of that stuff, I'm like, ooh, don't but, don't love this scary stuff. But it's continually thrown onto children to process. Yeah, and it's like you that's think, true. You think that the the pictures and and the songs and the images and the words aren't influencing people? And it's terrifying. Well, There's nothing more terrifying than the thought of burning in hell forever. I'm just saying. Oh no! Well, I was watching this documentary. It's a Scientology documentary or a docu series, but one of the episodes was on. Jehovah's Witnesses, don't come for me. They're not listening anyway, probably. But anyway, one of the things they talked about, this is this specific church. I'm not saying all of them did this. I don't even know. It's just they were talking about how the girl came out of the religion. Well, she said that when she was growing up, they would constantly be telling the children that you will drown in your own urine. I thought that spring break a couple times in college. I'm I'm just saying. As she was talking about all this stuff, she truly believed was going to happen any any day. To put that on a little kid, it's just kind of a lot. Here, here's the thing. I was listening. I I went down a whole. I was. I mean, whole ass rabbit hole. I've listened to all the things about. I'm obsessed with this case. And one of the podcasts I was listening to, the guy was talking about how he he started talking about this bearded man who knows everything you do. And he knows if you're good and he knows when you're bad and he will punish you if you're bad. But if you're good, you're rewarded. And he's naming off all these things. And he said, who am I talking about? Am I talking about Santa or am I talking about God? And the things that he said, I honestly, as a 41 year old woman was like, it could be either one of these. Mm -hmm. And it's like, this is what we do to kids. We tell them this whole big story. And then when they're at a certain age, we tell them Santa's not real. We just, you know, we wanted you to believe in this and that, but then we expect them to believe that this other person Mm -hmm. is real. 
So it's just like you can't, man, no one's going to listen to us after this. So we're going to get all the DMs. But you know what I mean? I mean, it's like it. he had a very valid point. I'm not saying I don't believe in God. I'm not saying that at all. But you can see as a child how that would be very confusing. Well, I even know some adults who... Not your neighbors mowing their yard. Mowing my yard. <laughs> or maybe it's Sam. I hope it's him mowing our yard. I'll excuse the noise. But even some adults that I know of in real life have a lot of fire and brimstone. Like, I guess that's what they think they're supposed to be doing or whatever. A nervous a, wreck. Almost obsessive. And, and I call it like, I'm like, revelations anxiety. No, for End real. of times anxiety. Sure. That's adults. Put that on a little kid or Max could never deal with it. Eight no. year olds like that's that's a lot. That's a of lot. Stuff. Well, and, and you sprinkle in being fourteen and trying to process your emotions and and how you know the pressure of sports and friends and mm-hmm. fuck that. Like we're on a soapbox. Anyways, yeah. let me get back to my story. So we'll make a, a another yeah. podcast called Revelation Anxiety with Lacey and Ash. The confessions. <laughs> the confessions. So other people chose to believe, my favorite, that he was possessed by a demon. Uh-huh. Others thought that maybe dad did it and was framing him, like I said. These people just needed somebody to blame. Yeah, I, but that, man, that would be a really brutal thing to do. And his son, how the eight-year-old he, saw, yeah, yeah, you know like what it, I mean? No, that's not, that's not it. But 14-year-old boys just don't murder their mothers and write contracts to demons. I'm just saying. Especially 14-year-old boys who were all-American. There was nothing out of the ordinary. There was nothing that raised any red flags until, like I said, two months before this happened. Or maybe there were, and his parents just ignored it, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe it wasn't anything major. Like, it it didn't kill a cat or, like, piss his bed or set anything on fire until he just flipped the fuck out that night. So, maybe he had a psychotic break. If you notice these stories that we read about or that we research, me especially, when it's super religious people and they have some kind of psychosis, it manifests religiously. Do you know yeah. what I'm saying? And that is a common thing. And I think it's because that's what's most important to them. You know what I mean? Like that's their driving force is like mass or church or God or, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But there was no psyche valve ever done on him because obviously Tommy killed himself. Yeah. So I don't know. Basically, he was a normal kid until he wasn't. And he just kind of fell into the wrong crowd with the wrong influences at the wrong time. And they just all blind together. And this seems to be the only answer that is accepted by all people, including the police force. But I mean, sometimes there are no answers, really. Just yeah. really bad shit happens for no reason. And the fact that he died and couldn't be interviewed right. or talk to her or anything and then or his evaluated. mother died yeah. and I don't know. That's so Betty's sister became a nun after studying wow. child psychology for over a decade trying to figure out what went wrong and how this happened to her family. Like it fucked her up. She petitioned the court and was allowed to look at the crime scene photos and they must have been really bad. More than the obvious devastation of losing her sister and nephew in such a horrific way. Because whatever she saw, she committed herself to a life of Christ and turned her back on everyone else. She joined a convent and never spoke to anybody else after she saw the pictures. Oh my god! Like, it gives me chills. Ooh. To this day, there has been no explanation of the blood smear on the top of the wall. Brian, you know, the little brother. Yeah. He committed suicide at the age of 21. Oh, no. There's also a universal agreement between law enforcement, the coroner, and anyone else who has ever looked at the body of Tommy. There is no way that he could have inflicted these wounds on himself. There's no way. Couldn't have been done. So a decade after the murder, suicide... Of the Sullivans. That is heartbreaking. A new family moves into the home. No. Their grown daughter comes to visit one day, walks straight through the house into the basement, and kills herself. Are you joking? Without saying a word to anyone. So, that's the story. That's... It gives what? me chills. Oh, my gosh. So, what do you think happened? Demonic possession. <laughs> kid that couldn't deal with his emotions and snapped. Okay, well, are have you seen any pictures online of... 
of it, the crime scene or anything? I did a quick some, Google search and I only some. saw a picture of his face, so I, I didn't know. There's not a whole lot. You think if I petitioned? Lacey, don't do that. You're going to keep on with this non-believing demon stuff. No, but I would like to see the pictures just so I can have, you know, see what it looks like. But We'll see if we can find some. To be an angel's advocate, no, but really. He, he was a 14-year-old kid, but he was on the wrestling team and trained a lot. So he was athletic and arguably strong enough. I'm not saying he could lift his mom, but how tall was she? Lacey's punching holes in my no, theories no, no, no. of possession. No, no, no. just trying to like think of anything. But eight feet. Dead yeah. weight. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a Do lot. Do we know because you said there were different parts of her body? Could no. it have been a part of her no, body? No, she wasn't sliced into pieces. Okay. She, her head was just beat in her face when her eyeballs were gone. Hmm. Like you could probably throw an eyeball eight feet but not a whole ass body. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's just really terrible. Gosh. Yeah. So some people think that when he was out there in the middle of the woods on that scary ass haunted road in America, that he kind of got welcomed the demon in. Maybe he didn't believe it because he was a skeptic and was like, blah, blah, this, blah, blah, that. And when <laughs> God inside him, Lacey's trying not to laugh right now because he st- he went to he started like drawing pentagrams and sixes and sixes and all the things and I mean anyways it just happened very quickly yeah did like his normal friend, to flipped out did his friend Lance get really into it too or was no. it just and he said that he had noticed changes in him and was like hmm. you know what is going on blah 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 but he even became very withdrawn from him. So I don't know. I, it's terrible when obviously anybody dies or anybody murders anybody. But 14, that's a kid. Mm-hmm. That's terrible. That's, yeah. Like Max will be 14 in six years. It's not that long. Mm-hmm. And you just can't, I mean, and to be such a loving and, I don't know. It's got me messed up. I'm like reading all the, and listening to all the things. Yeah, I, I want to know more late. about this. Yeah. So then I'm in bed last night with my laptop, and I got my little AirPods in my ears, and I'm, I'm listening to podcasts as I'm typing, and I'm doing all the things. I thought I heard something, but take them oh out. My gosh. And I hear up the hall, and I'm like a 10-year-old. I'm like, Max? <laughs> He's like, Mom, I had a bad dream. I'm oh, like, oh, no. come get in bed with me. I was Shaking. You are a mess. All the lights are on in the house. I'm like, I can't. I can't. Oh my gosh. I had to stop. And then I had to stop because Max was in there and I was like, I can't let him. He already had a bad dream. I can't. Yeah. I don't know. I asked him what his dream was and it was something about his football game. So. Oh, okay. Not related. Not Not even related. I mean, eight-year-old problems. (laughs) These cases do fascinate me. They do. Me too. I mean, it's. But terrible, but make me super nervous. Mm-hmm. Catholic, you know, believe in all this They make stuff. me scared of kids, too. Well, kids are scary. Kids are scary. Like, oh, God. Demons are scarier, Lacey. I don't know. I would argue. I am telling <laughs> you. Oh, my gosh. Do we need to take a break? We need a break. Ooh, after that. Well, my case today is also a demon possession case. Is it really? No. Damn it. You're, you're so excited. I was so excited. No. Maybe one day I will. Maybe one day. <sighs> then I'll be mad that you got it before me. <laughs> we should do a, a debate team style demon possession. Um, Each pick. <laughs> we should have a round table. A demon. Re- you, got, you were supposed to contact the priest. I will get in touch with a priest. We can't have Dr. Andrews back on here. And then your lady, the psychiatrist, <laughs> or whatever. And we'll have a discussion. That sounds good to me. I'm serious. All right. In November of 2010, Diane Zaleski was 54 years old and was a retired legal secretary living in Union, New Jersey. She didn't have a significant other and didn't have any kids, but that didn't mean that she was without a support system. She was really close to her family. She was really social. On November 18, 2010, Diane missed an appointment, and she also wasn't responding to calls or texts. So Diane's elderly parents 
And when I say elderly, her father was 91. I think elderly is like 70s. Well, she was 54, and I'm assuming her mother probably was close in age. Could be wrong, but it said her dad was 91. So they decide. That's what happens when you have kids in your 30s. They went to her house, which was in a nice, quiet neighborhood, to see what was going on. They went inside and found her dead. They immediately called 911, and the authorities responded to the scene, but nothing could prepare the authorities for what they were about to walk into. There was no sign of a forced entry, but there was blood all over the house that led down to the basement where Diane was lying in a pool of her own blood. She had been viciously stabbed dozens of times. One of the members of the homicide task force said that he had never seen so much trauma to one person's body. According to the record, she had more than 44 puncture wounds and bruises all over her arms. She was punched and strangled as well. Yet her cause of death was a numerous blunt force and lacerative injuries to the head and neck, many of which overlapped. And because she had so many wounds overlapping, they couldn't determine the exact number of times that she had been stabbed, which is just really bad. And she appeared to have put up a fight because she had defensive wounds all over her arms. I hate a stab. And 44 plus. I hate, I think that would be terrible to be stabbed. Yeah. I mean, if I get a paper cut, I want to take it to the house. I want to call 911. Imagine a whole ass knife no. going through you. Oh gosh, I can't. I can't even, I can't even imagine. Mm-mm. And it appeared she had been sexually assaulted before her death because some of her clothing was removed and she had underwear by her head. Whoever did this attempted to clean up. There was a cleaning solution left near the door. They suspected that he cleaned Diane of any DNA that he may have left behind. There was, though, one drop of blood that didn't appear to be Diane's that they sent away for testing. They also sent away Diane's underwear for testing. It also appeared as though the killer had taken a shower washed their clothes, and had eaten before leaving. Based on Diane's computer history, the killer also attempted to use her credit card to buy some tech devices before leaving and also watched porn. So how long would this person have been there? I mean, it wasn't an in-and-out job. No. Showering, doing laundry, washing porn, just... Mm -mm. So they felt like the killer had to have known Diane in some capacity because why else would... They stay there so long. Like, they weren't afraid someone was going to barge in. So it's kind of like they knew she didn't have a significant other coming home and that she lived alone. An autopsy report concluded that Diane had died from multiple blunt force injuries, but they were unable to confirm if she'd been sexually assaulted prior to her death since the killer cleaned her body. The results of the blood test came back and it confirmed that the killer was a man, but unfortunately, there was no match in the system. They just knew it was a man. So now let's look into a few suspects. After some interviews with Diane's friends, they learned that she had a pretty tumultuous relationship with a man by the name of Mike Prunell. He'd even asked her father for a hand in marriage once. They had known each other for 20 years and had a long history. In the beginning of the investigation, police called people in her contact list on her phone, and Mike was one of the people they called. Well, he denied knowing who Diane was. Yeah. Typical dude. Yeah, and they thought this was a little strange, so they did some digging, and they found out that Mike was not his real name and that he had a history of violence. His former wife even had to get a restraining order against him once, and once told police that he would routinely beat her. So authorities called Mike in for a second round of questioning, and he still denied knowing Diane. Listen, dude, we have all of her friends saying this. You asked for her father's hand in marriage. You knew this woman. He didn't have an alibi for the night, but he did agree to have his DNA tested. Surprisingly, the DNA was not a match, so the search continued. And remember the killer tried to buy things online? Well, whoever this was had tried to arrange for the items to be delivered to Diane's house. So they were still comfortable enough to go back to the house at some point and pick items up. So it made investigators believe even more, like, this is someone who wouldn't stand out if they were around her house or on her doorstep or whatever. Well, then police got the DNA results back, and there was a match for the semen on Diane's underwear. I hate semen. 
almost as bad as a stab wound. <laughs> yeah, it's not a good mix. Not a good mix. Ugh. So the DNA showed that the semen belonged to her brother, Ron. What? Yeah. Not her brother. Well, it's even... It's Okay, this is just wild. So they called Ron in for questioning, and he was shocked. And they believed that he was shocked. They said they could tell he wasn't... He was just like, I have no idea why this would happen. We're not romantically involved i've never you know no, like, because it's your sister yeah well yeah he was like no absolutely not and the police were of course the dna doesn't lie but they were like we believe that he's surprised but what's what would be an explanation you know so he's like well diane would do her laundry at my house sometimes and maybe if my clothes or my underwear was mixed in who knows so, of course, they weren't just going to take his word for it. So they called in Ron's wife for an interview. And she said that Ron was at home the time of Diane's murder. So he had a solid alibi. And she said the underwear were actually hers and not Diane's. What? So Diane was wearing those underwear. However, she said she did laundry at her brother's house. Well, they wore the same size and style of underwear. So, so maybe she took them So Exactly. She did laundry over there, and maybe she accidentally just got grabbed, it, like, if it. you wear the same. I could see that happening, especially if it's, like, a solid color, and it's the same style. I don't know. The DNA test from the blood at the scene did not match Ron, so they kept investigating. So the semen was Ron. But the blood was a different man, so since the two didn't match, they're like, okay, this is strange. After a year, the police received an interesting tip from a woman from out of state named Anne. She said that she was talking to someone online and was worried that they were being investigated for a crime in New Jersey. She met this man on Facebook, and they'd been friends for years, and over the course of time, he'd admitted to selling drugs and committing a murder, like Facebook friends do. At one point, he mentioned to her that he was getting worried because the police had his DNA. So Anne starts sleuthing. She's like, okay, is this, is he, of course, you know, you think maybe he's bullshitting me. Maybe this is, you know, something like this is happening. So she started looking online for open cases in New Jersey. And as she was researching, the article about the one-year anniversary of Diane's death pops up. And she reads more about the case, and it mentioned that DNA was found at the scene. They still didn't know who did it. And she started recalling other things her friend had admitted to doing. He told her he did laundry at the victim's house and ate there. Yeah, so like a good citizen, she contacted the police. And they were convinced, almost immediately. They booked a flight and spoke to Anne in real life and learned that her friend's name was Arnell Yearwood. As soon as they heard his last name, a light bulb went off. Because it was the same name of a family who lived across the street, diagonally, from Diane. Arnell Yearwood occasionally lived in the basement of the house who belonged to his mother. They'd spoken to his mother when they were there originally canvassing the area, but she had told police that she didn't know where her son was at the time. He was also a pretty small man, five foot two inches, and could be mistaken for a teenager. While Diane would hire local kids to help with her yard work sometimes, so they were thinking that maybe Diane had talked to him about this. Investigators tracked Arnell Yearwood down and brought him in for questioning. He, of course, claimed he was totally innocent, and he consented to a DNA test. This time, there was a match to the blood at the scene. Finally, two years after Diane's brutal murder, Arnell Yearwood was arrested in 2012. And then finally, he confessed. He said that on the day of her murder, Diane had led him inside after hiring him to do a few chores for her. Later, he tried to suggest a romantic relationship, and she rejected him. And this is apparently what made him snap. He grabbed a pair of scissors and began stabbing her repeatedly. With scissors? Yes. Then strangled her. Then he dragged her body to the basement and left her there while he attempted to clean up the scene. Forty-four plus times, just because he made some type of advance, and she rejected him, and just to brutally murder someone. In court, Arnell Yearwood pled guilty and received a sentence of 30 years in prison, which was the maximum sentence, in 2014 at the age of 28. So at the time of her murder, he was 24. 
When asked if he had anything to say before the sentence was imposed, he declined to make any statement. His father and cousin were in the court to support him, and his mother had written a letter to the judge on behalf of her son. His public defender said that Yearwood had drug and alcohol abuse problems and needed treatment, and then he also suffers from a genetic depressive disorder, and at the time of his arrest, he had a 10-year-old daughter. It was noted in a pre-sentencing interview that Yearwood denied having any drug abuse issues, and he also denied having any children. I know. It's like, they're going to find that out. Yeah, they're going to know. In a court, in court, a letter was read from Diane's sister, Kathy, who wrote that both her parents became ill and died within about two years after the murder. And she said that this was in large part from the stress of the killing. She said that all family members, including another sister and Diane's five nieces and nephews, suffered from the loss. After completing the prison term, Arnell Yearwood will face deportation to Trinidad, where he is a citizen. He's currently incarcerated at the New Jersey State Prison in Trenton, where he's expected to remain until April 9th, 2042. So he'll just be in his 50s. He's out. Piece of shit. He'll have a whole life. So there's an episode on Oxygen that's called Unexpected Killer about this case, and I got a lot of my info from Oxygen's website, the Cinemaholic, and local New Jersey news. And to end on a lighter note, I have a few... New Jersey fun facts for you. Oh, you do? I do. I was going to make New Jersey trivia, but I'm like, she's not going to know. Why would you know New Jersey trivia? Okay. New Jersey is referred to as the diner capital of the world. Really? I know. If you asked me, I would have said New York. I don't know. But yeah, they have the most diners in the world. New Jersey has the tallest water tower in the world. It's in Union. These are totally random facts. (laughs) Last one, New Jersey state dances, square dancing. No. Yes. I would think that would be like Mississippi. Well, it probably is Mississippi. So I went on a tangent because I was curious, and most of the states claim square dancing as their state dance. In fact, the U.S. dance is square dancing, so that makes sense. The U.S. dance? Like the United States, yeah. It's it's the square dance. Hawaii, of course, has hula as their state dance. Well, I can see that. Wisconsin has the polka. Of course. But the majority were square. Arkansas was square dancing. Who's country western dancing or lawn dancing or two-stepping? I don't know. If you're curious about your state, I do have the link in the show notes and you can check that out. It's the wiki page of list of U.S. state dances. Who the dunk? Hilarious. Yeah. I was like, wait, New Jersey? So then I started looking up. I'm like, oh, well, it's like 40 states are claiming this is their state dance, but... I'm going to have nightmares about demons tonight and being stabbed with scissors. So that podcast. And underwear with my brother's semen on them. (laughs) This whole case. That would be a nightmare. terrible. Could you imagine? Could you imagine your laundry getting mixed up with your sister-in-law's and then finding out that your brother's semen was on the panties that you just had on? New fear unlocked. (laughs) Lacey's going to throw up. Her eyes are watering. (laughs) That... And also, though, her poor brother was probably like, I mean, he, from all accounts, it sounds like he is totally innocent. Sure. Miss. Probably like, what in the world? Like, like, no. Imagine trying to talk your way out of that. It's like the DNA's there, Th- sir. They're semen. Semen don't lie. I'm never doing any laundry near my brother. Oh. That's for sure. Nope. Mm-hmm. Nope. 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 <laughs> oh, is that the podcast you were listening to today that you oh, sent yeah. me? What's it called? Um, The Devil Within. The Devil Within. So it's all about this case? It, well, there are, let me see how many episodes. Season one, there are, there are 10 episodes. All of this case? Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to listen to it. And then I'm, I'm thinking since this says season one, then there's going to be another season. But it's so good. They have 2,269 ratings and they're only a 3.2. A lot of people are like, this is a lot of rambling. And it is. But if you love the demons, <laughs> you appreciate the rambling because there's like, oh, there's a backstory. Yeah. It some does, people it hate kind of like go that. off the path some. and they'll, Yeah, I get it. I but, mean, well, at a certain point, though, it's speculation. You don't have more than that. You know what I mean? Right. Just in my quick little Google, I couldn't right. find a lot of pictures. So all you can do is talk about certain well, things. Well, and, and I think he, the guy... He kind of explains 
different things. And he also kind of paints this picture of how it happened. Of course, we don't know that it happened that way Mm -hmm. exactly, but I like the fact that he kind of tells you this story into maybe what was going through Tom's okay. head. That's interesting. I like stuff like that. Yeah. It's yeah. not everybody's cup of tea, but I liked it. I enjoyed it. I binged it all in like two days. I need a new podcast. I just finished, uh, well, it's been out for a while, but the second season of uh, the one with, I can't think of his name, Dwight from The Office and, oh, and Lindsay. Um, is it uh, Radio Rental? Yes, Radio There's Rental. There's a new season? Well, it's the second season. It's oh, been out okay. for a while. I, I say, just I, got I'm up. done with all of Radio Rental. Oh, yeah. It's one of my favorites. It's so interesting because they're so true stories. Yeah, so good. And they're just spooky, weird things that happen to people. Well, Let's Not Ooh. Meet is like that, too. I haven't listened to that. Oh, to, there you go. I'm write this okay, down. I need to write these things down. It's called Let's Not Meet, and it's basically people writing in their situations where they're like telling stories of weird, scary shit that happened to them. And then at the end of the story, they'll say, So, creepy dude that followed me out of the gas station, let's not meet. Ooh, so, it's I'll listen good. to that. It's good. And they're like an hour and a half long, and they come out like every Monday. Okay, yeah. They're good. I need a new thing. There's to like 500 of them. I'm caught up on creepy. I've listened to like Five years of creepy. Mm-hmm. I'm done. This one's it's another so one of those. This really I good. love creepy stuff. I do too. Clearly. Where are we next week? Texas. The Lone Star State. Uh, there's Is plenty. It? I think so. I mean, that's one of their nicknames. I feel like it's been forever since we did Texas. Well, that was one of our first yeah. ones. That's going to be... Texas is a doozy because it's close to home. There's so much stuff. There's so much stuff. It's like a California. So I'm like, Texas. We're coming for you. Don't mess with it. Don't. They they warn you. You've been warned. I'm looking at this pigeon. Big fat pigeon on this telephone pole outside. Oh, before we go, I wanted to tell you that I think I found my new favorite drink. You know I love a fruity cocktail. Well, Barton asked me last week if I like key lime pie. And I'm like, uh, yes, I love it. I thought he was going to slide me over a piece of pie. He did not. He came back with a martini glass full of this light, fluffy concoction It's a key lime pie martini. I don't know exactly what was in it, but it tasted exactly like a key lime pie. I mean, down to the graham cracker crust. I asked him if some type of syrup was used for that flavor, and he said no graham cracker was used. So I'm very curious, and I don't know the recipe. So y'all are just going to have to go down there and try it yourself. Ask for the key lime pie martini. I'm telling you, it is amazing. Sit at the bar, say hi to Barton, say hi to Jess, snag a seat. (laughs) <laughs> snag, snag a table. A table. We'll be back next week in Texas. In Texas. Bye. Bye.